The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. A reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Helen. Well, praise the Lord, saints. Praise the Lord, saints. Amen. Uh, before we got dive into God's word, let us say a quick word of prayer. God, we... We come to you, as the song has already said, in prayer, seeking you for wisdom, understanding of your word. I pray, Lord, that you speak with my mouth and think with my mind. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer, the one who is continuously making himself known through his word, your word, and revealing yourself to those who do not know you. I pray that that happens this morning and that your people are encouraged. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, all God's people said together. Amen. Amen. Power makes slaves of masters. Power makes slaves of masters. For it cuts them off, that being masters, from the world they claim to comprehend. But I have given up my power, you see, given it up so that I might begin to see. Power makes slaves of masters. This is a quote from the book that I mentioned last week, The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which is a novel but yet a powerful quote. And yet, because when we look at power and control in our society, there's a deception that humanity can have absolute power or control over their lives. And we see also throughout history in our society, we have created modes, systems, structures, etc., to demonstrate a level of power. That power affecting people in a negative way. But we also know that power can be used in a righteous way, in a good way. However, if we were to admit one thing, if we were to admit one thing that humanity is radically corrupt, say radically corrupt. 
that is true. Humanity is radically corrupt. The people in this room, we are radically corrupt. And if we do not, unless we don't become radically transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, we are then controlled by the power of evil. Which evil then is exploiting human beings and dehumanizing them for its own power. What has it done? Systems and structures, modes that have demonstrated power that has been evil have ripped families from one another. Taken children that are newborns from their mothers. Fathers have been deceived into selling their children into slavery. Fathers have been torn away from their teenage children. Girls have been taken away from their family and kidnapped. Why? Because people see one another in an evil and dehumanizing way. They don't see how God has created us. But yet, we see time and time again that this radical corruption, it manifests itself in concentration camps. It manifests itself in detention centers. It manifests itself in mass incarceration. It manifests itself by selling children into slavery. It manifests itself by selling uh, children into sex trafficking. This is deplorable. These deplorable acts have oppressed and exploited humans because of radical corruption of power. Why is that important? I want you to understand it. As we look at this text this morning, so many people will say to us, have used this to explain how we ought to serve in employment. I don't think I want to take that interpretation of the text because I think that Somebody could be working at McDonald's, but we may not be talking about the exploitation of McDonald's. Somebody can be working for someone. Someone could have a business, but we don't talk about how it's dehumanized individuals. And that's where I want to take this text, because if you were allowed me to clarify this passage, it's not like modern day chattel slavery necessarily. If, I, if we would look at this, we have to understand as much as scholars have seen over time that the ancient world in which they had slavery was not based on ethnicity or race, but yet it was based on in the Roman Empire social status, whether one was free or one was a slave. And you see this because you actually had children born into slavery. If, they, if their mother was a slave, the child would become a slave. If the father was poor and down on his luck, in order to escape slavery, he would take his child and sell them into slavery. In fact, you also had penal slavery, which meant that if you had a debt or if you evaded the census or you were avoiding um, uh, military service, you then would be captured and put into slavery. Those are distinctions that we see, but yet we have to say they're detestable. That there's something that's wrong with the system. 
There's something wrong with the structure that's in place. And two words I want you to hear time and time again, exploitation and dehumanization. When those are the things that reign supreme in one's social order, it's the abuse of power. Many of us would think that, well, I don't abuse power, so how does my, if this sermon is going to be informative, that's fine, but where does it meet me? You know what? It meets us because we all crave power. We would be lying to ourselves if we didn't say because we are radically corrupt and yet God is working on us, amen, somebody, and radically transforming us, a progressive ordeal. We have to understand the fact that the matter is, is that we even have used people in our own way and we have desired power. How? Oh, yes, you desire power when you want it higher social status. You desire power when you want the better life. You desire power when you want a little bit more change in your pocket. You desire power when you're looking for the promotion. You desire power when upward social mobility becomes your, your, the way in which you want to live. You desire power when you want to make someone your footstool in order to get somewhere else. You desire power. But the, but the idea of it is, is it righteous? Is it good? Is it a power that brings glory to God? Or do we at times bargain with God in order to get power so that we can have the life that we have? Here's what I want us to think about. We need to be praying, saints. We need to be praying to become powerless. The more that we become powerless, God penetrates our hearts in order for him to be powerful. He's already powerful, but it reveals having sight to see the very one who holds all power. But when we try to fight for it for ourselves, what happens is we're blinded to the one who actually has this power. So what do I want you to remember this morning? What do I want you to hang your hat on? Because the big idea of this entire sermon series has been what? We submit to what's supreme in our lives. And thus, if that's the case, I want you to think about this throughout this entire time. This morning is this. Since we have been radically transformed by the gospel, we then relinquish our power. We have to relinquish our power. We have to give up power and control over our family. We have to give up the actual ability to try to do everything, husband, in our family, to try to make it seem as if we got everything going on, that we can try to control things. We got to give our children over. We can't have power over them, mother and father, because we have to understand that God is the one that is most powerful. But then also, we have to understand that you cannot think about your position, whether you are a CEO, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're the manager on the night shift, whether you're working in the warehouse. No matter where you are, if you're serving at Amazon and shipping Amazon packages or you are, whatever it is, you cannot dehumanize the people that you, one, serve, two, work with, and three, take advantage of exploitation and dehumanization is the problem but how do we attack this as radically transformed communities you know how do we you know how we attack this in two ways I believe that our text says one way that we challenge a system that intentionally exploits and dehumanizes people we challenge the system 
We have to challenge the system. I believe that Paul does this. It's clear when you read Colossians 11, 3, 11, he's providing a right view of humanity. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, that here this is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scathian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. I know this won't be an amen sermon this morning. I'm okay with that. My security is in the Lord. Amen, somebody. (laughs) But what I do know is, is that we have to come to the reality and the sensibility that what Paul is doing is actually radically transforming an idea in which individuals have had several barriers in their system to divide individuals, exploiting them and dehumanizing them. And in doing so, there's no other word that we have to understand besides the fact that human beings are not less, we're not less than one another. If you see a homeless person, they're not less, they're not a less of a human being than you are. They have inherent dignity, worth, and value. How do we know that this is the case? Because Genesis 26 and 28 says that all of us have been created in the image and the likeness of man, I mean of God. If that is the case, then we understand that everyone in this room, no matter your skin color, no matter how much money you have, no matter the job that you work, no matter how your house looks, no matter what you drive, you are not better than the other. That is a reality that we have to begin to adopt more in our society and challenge the view in which we look at each other. How do I know Paul has a better view, a right view, because of his relationship with Onesimus in the book of Philemon? Onesimus and Philemon. Many of you may not know who those people are. Onesimus was a runaway slave. And he's mentioned in chapter four, if you continued reading in the preceding verses. And is this runaway slave? At some instance, many say various different things. I don't have time in the going how he possibly ran into Paul, but he was with Paul in prison. And being with Paul, Paul, he came to know God. He was radically transformed, running away. No, we don't know if he stole something, but what we do know is that he was radically transformed. Paul begins to appeal with Philemon to welcome Onesimus back as a brother in the faith. How many times in any aspect of slavery you have seen someone look at a master or an owner look at a slave as an equal? You can say, I ain't never said, you can shake your head, you can do something. That does not make sense to us. How many CEOs or how many people that own businesses, how many of them look at their employees as their equals? Sometimes they're not perceived to be such because they're just another number. So they are exploited. What do we see when Paul makes this appeal to Philemon? He says in chapter 1, which is chapter, chapter 1, In verse 10, I appeal to you for for my child, my child. Paul says, my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. 
But listen to this. Formerly, he was useless to you. Paul says, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Onesimus' name means usefulness. Paul's wisdom is to actually use this name and to actually take, make, it, make, make Philemon understand that Onesimus is not just a slave, but he's a child of God. What is he? he continues to go on and say, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. The terms of endearment are intentional. Paul does not make his appeal to abolish slavery. Many scholars would say, well, why doesn't Paul abolish slavery? Why doesn't he tear down the actual system that's in place? Paul is trying to be wise because he knows that Onesimus, it's, Onesimus is a child of God. Paul can't do anything about slavery in the social order at all. They didn't have a diplomatic, I mean, a, a democracy. It wasn't as if he could go lobby to, political, uh, to politicians and make some kind of legislation that they would then overturn slavery and constitutionally they would, they would be human beings. That was not the case in the Roman Empire. So what is Paul doing? He is trying to have those that are in rule actually have a right view of those of humanity. Those that are in rule have a right view of those that are in humanity. He challenges the understanding of those that have power. And you know this because if you are then a child of the king, he is your only master. We'll get to how I believe Paul is kind of playing on master and Lord in the next couple of verses. But when you look at verse 22, he says, bond servant, obey in everything those who are your earthly master. Not by way of eye service and uh, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Here, I think there is wisdom again in his, in his instruction, affirming the social order at the time, but yet at the same time, making sure that he affirms the dignity of those that have that are believers. Mind you, Paul is not just talking to a bunch of random individuals. You have to understand that, again, contextually, we're in Colossae and where we are, this is still a small church. But yet there is false teaching, false doctrine and a lot of individuals who are being converted and maybe even slaves or bond servants. But yet their masters have not been. And you have to understand, like I told you last week, that a bond servant actually was a part of the household. A bond servant was actually someone who lived in, had living quarters in the house of their master. It wasn't like when we would think about a plantation. It wasn't, it's not like when we would think about a concentration camp. But it was much more as if the whole household, as he is, that bond servant, he or she, that family is working for that master. Am I making sense this morning? So... Exploitation and dehumanization and social orders is interesting because why would Paul say, okay, you, you're being exploited, you're being treated wrong, but obey him in everything. Obey your master in everything. Everything that you do, make, make sure that you do what they say do. This is difficult. I don't want to make light of this, and my mind is still turning as I studied this passage and looked over at how Paul can just say obey. Because as, as I would look at it, I would say, well, won't we just run up on them, Paul, and just shut it all down? 
Huh? Well, I believe once we get out these chains, and once you get out the chains, won't you go ahead and come over here on the boat and just let, let's, let's just wreck shop? The, the, that is what I think about, but here is what I believe it applies to us today when I think about this idea in which we have to have a, a, a right view. We, there shouldn't be harsh treatment towards those, is what Paul is saying, in slavery. But at the same time, what he is also saying is, is that when you obey, know that you are serving the Lord. Know that your fear of the Lord should be greater than your fear of your master. Here's the wisdom also. Because masters had absolute control and slaves had lost at all of their rights, they could be flogged, they could be beaten in other ways, they could, they, they could treat them in any way they would like. Paul doesn't want a revolt in order for people to, not, to be beat. He didn't want them to have to live under harsh conditions. What he wants them to do is, is no matter what it is, serve the Lord. Give that, I'm going to give you that perspective. Why? Because you are somebody. You do have worth. You do have value. What am I saying? And how does that relate to us? I believe colorism. I believe racism. I believe the, the caste system of, of, of economic and social divisions. I believe all the, the healthcare system, the corruption that we see there. I believe that the injustices we see in the educational system all affirm exploitation and dehumanization. They all say that in every situation, someone is greater than you or someone de deserves more care, to you, care than you because either the color of your skin, how much money you have in your pocket, your position, your access to privilege and power. And when you see this, I want you to understand because my testimony to this is that, and I didn't know this until my pops told me later, when I was in St. Louis, I was a part of a, a program called the desegregation program. Right? And the desegregation program would take kids out of the city and bust them to county schools. One would think, why don't we give teachers better salaries and give, offer better facilities instead of busting kids out to county schools? However, I, okay, somebody woke this morning. However, I want you, so a part of what I had gone through, and I, honestly, I don't remember all of it, but I was called racial slurs. It's called the N-word. I was put, I now do remember this, on the side of the teacher. I was the kid that sat right on the side of the teacher, and I fell asleep every time. No one paid attention to me. I was immediately put in remedial classes, taken out of the classroom, put in another room with another black child, and I was set aside as if I had educational deficiencies. And I remember they tried to just move me to the second grade, but my mother said he didn't learn a thing. He's not going to the second grade. Even, I, I wasn't mad at her at the time. I was mad later on because I was like, people asking me, why am I older than them and I'm in the same grade? I'm like, my mama held me back. <laughs> but, but what I realized is that I, wasn't, I was already set aside, and I know many other children were, like myself, in various other aspects. But what it said to me, and now, is that 
No one had a problem exploiting a child. Our society is so corrupt, it has no problem at just saying that it's okay that certain schools have lesser access to power and privilege. It's okay that kids can be treated a certain way. It's okay that even in our schools, and, and, and I show my hand in my car, I don't like when our schools are heavy on discipline on our minority children because all day long, wherever they are, they're being treated as if they're not human beings. I don't know everybody's home situation, but if they don't have a good home situation, why would they come to school and be treated lesser than a human being? Why would you want to go and be a part of a society? Why would you want to be a part even of the church that in our churches that you could be treated less than? We know the history here in Memphis. See, that's why I don't want to take this text to only say this is how employers are to treat employees or this is how employees are to respond to employers. I want to get to the fact that, no, when somebody may walk in your church, somebody walk in your home, the way you view somebody, we are operating on that individual. Do you see them as a human? When you're serving that individual, do you see them as a human? Do you only want the money out of someone's pocket and exploiting them or do you want to value them? I think Paul is getting to the understanding that there's a right value. And so when you do sit across the table from a client, you're not trying to take from them. And let me get to colorism, because I believe that's an issue. You don't believe that you shouldn't believe since your skin is lighter than the other that you're better. You should not believe that because society says it, that you are what we understand that comes from plantations, that you are a house Negro and you're a field Negro. That mentality should be debunked. It is deplorable. It is detestable. And we should not affirm it. Also, we ought to understand that exploitation comes through the way that we treat our children behaviorally. That behavioral racist ideas and policies of dehumanization are put in place because you say that if a child acts this way, this is, what they, this is how we ought to treat them, like a criminal. Treating them as if they should already be placed and be ready for prison. See, I know y'all are looking at me crazy. But I want you to understand that when you look at the news and when you see someone who's done something, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it a person that is created in the image and the likeness of God? Or is it someone that you're ready to condemn and cast down and say, this is what he deserves. This is what she deserves. We have issues in our society because we are radically corrupt. And I think Paul is making the case that we cannot reaffirm these ideas of corruption. We cannot make a slight at the view of humanity because what we need to be doing is challenging the structures and the systems that are in place. We need to challenge how people, I know in your own circles, I know for a fact, in your own circles, to my, to my, to my dominant culture brothers and sisters, that there are things that you're like, oh, I would, I, I would not want this relative, this friend around my minority brothers and sisters. I know for a fact, minority brothers and sisters, you feel the same way in ways that you 
or disdain at the way that you have been treated, that you see others treated. I know for a fact that all of these things that we're trying to live in silence about, we're trying to live in silence with, they eat us alive. And we can't deal with it because what happens is we get fed up. And what some psychologists have said that some for minorities, you go into what is called, you immerse yourself in racial identity. So now, you become Michael Stoke, you become Stokely Carmichael. You become Stokely Carmichael with the gospel a little bit. You don't care about equality or equity. You, you care about vengeance. And see, that's the wisdom behind what Paul is saying. Is that it, we leave that vengeance to the Lord. It is hard as all get out. It's hard to see women being captured and children being captured in sex trafficking. Uh, just the other day, my neighbor, their child was walking out down the street to go get some sugar from somebody else. That still happens today. She texted us. We didn't have any. We try not to eat sugar this month. But he ran back to the house because he seen a white van and his mother said, they're capturing children. If you see a van, you see a white van, just run back to the house. And that's what he did. Why do we have to live like this? That is a question that we have to, we have to ask ourselves, but we also need to be challenging the system that is in place. I need to move on. My point, let me move on to this, this, this idea. Can you show that picture? Um... So one, one of the things at, at George Washington University, the public school of health, there was a research dealing with e equality and equity. Anybody, you heard this research, you heard anything like this, raise your hand or say amen, yes. So you understand that what they were trying to do was show the distinction between equality and equity. And here you actually see individuals with different heights who are attempting to peer, to, to be, um, to peer over the fence. And to do the same exact thing, that's kind of how I see it, to do the, the same exact thing. In order to treat them with equality, they're all given the same size box to improve the line of sight, right? But in doing so, you see, obviously, that the shortest one is, not, is at a disadvantage when it comes to equality. But what equity does is actually routed differently. Equity is achieving what will not be accomplished through treating everyone equally. It will be achieved by treating everyone equitably or justly according to their circumstances. This is not a social exercise. I want to say that. This is what I believe when we look at chapter one, chapter one of verse four, Paul gets to. Look at chapter one, verse four. Masters, treat your bond service what? Justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So when you look at this, all this time, a lot of us have not seen this, and a lot of things we'll be doing is say, oh, we, just need, we need equal rights. We need just rights. We need to fight for these things. But then when you think about it, it's like, well, this young brother doesn't have a chance. Or he has to grow up. And we don't know what the lifespan is. 
And so what do, you, what do you do? Well, you sacrifice. What did I say at the beginning? Relinquishing power. Equity actually means that in a social setting, in this setting, Paul transformatively says to, to the masters, treat them justly and fairly. You know why? Because you got a master too. You're not just a master over them. You are serving the same Lord. What does that do then? It puts in perspective that in heaven, there's no way on earth that just because you're a master, then you are better than them. You won't have a crown more in your jewel. You won't have another room in your mansion. You are just as the same as every other human being on earth because you're my child master. Treat, that, treat my other child justly and fairly. I think about my single mothers who have to work a certain amount of jobs, who, don't, who make minimum wage. I, 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 I hurt for them. Because if you, if you don't have the education or if you don't have the opportunity, what happens is you, you be, you're, you're left with this. And someone's saying to you, won't you just budget better? Won't you just do this better? Won't you just work more jobs? I struggle with, with that line of thinking because the reality is, as Christians, we have to challenge the system of thought that you just need to do more. What happened to, self, what happened to that theology that we say, oh, it's not just about doing more. I think that applies in the same sense of, I need to come alongside of you and help you. I need to treat you justly and fairly. I mean, let me continue on because I think that I don't want us to miss the fact that what he is saying is the power who ultimately has power is Christ alone. And his power should be the power that is wielded and worked it. So what do we need? We need continued prayer and wisdom. We need continued prayer and wisdom. Why do we need continued prayer and wisdom? Because prayer helps us relinquish the power that we think that we have. And wisdom helps us to begin to use the power that God has in order to empower other people. Amen, somebody. How do we know this? How do we understand what prayer is? Because, well, first of all, we have to take what Augustine has said in Tim Keller's book on power prayer, on, on, um, on prayer. He has a quote from Augustine where he says that we have to understand our hearts, that our hearts are disordered. When we understand our hearts are out of order, what happens is with the things that we love that are third, that are, that are fourth, those are the things that we actually put first. Y'all see that? The things that are third, the things that are fourth, that's what we put first. But what he is saying is, once you understand that, that uh, once you understand the first, what, who God is, and that he should, his, that we should love supremely, we should love him supremely, and I might add that he reigns supreme on our, I might add that he reigns supreme over our lives, this is it. Is that someone who may acknowledge and but whose favor and presence is not existentially as important to us as prosperity, success, status, love, and pleasure. Essentially, I don't want that to sound disjointed. What, I, what it essentially is saying is when, when Christ reigns supreme in your life, when the love of Christ reigns supreme in your life, the things that are third, fourth, that take the first place will be replaced. So that success, that prosperity, that status, that love, that pleasure, that you, that all of those things will be put below what the Lord is doing. So how do we, I want to give real practical ways in which we pray and some to apply to our body. So what happens in prayer? What do we see Paul saying happens in prayer? I think what happens in prayer is a couple things. Is that the heart, our hearts 
You see, his heart is changed towards guards. The very people that are in prison, he's actually trying to pray for them. The people that have imprisoned him, he's trying to pray for them. When's the last time we pray for people we don't like? How many? And then let me say this, because I was talking to a sister this week. And she said something to the point. She's like, if we're in a church together or if you're in anything, how often are your prayers critical? Can you pray a critical prayer? I want you to think about that. When things aren't right, whether that's in this church, whether that's in your, can you, can you pray something critical? Or can you, does your prayer actually exalt God in order for his power to change things? So it causes us to be more empathetic. Then also prayer, in prayer we learn how to become powerless. In prayer we learn how to become powerless. I know when you're praying because you're sensitive to the spirit of the Lord. I, I, it's, it's obvious when you're praying for somebody else because you ask them how they're doing. That prayer requests don't fall on deaf ears, but you actually follow up to hear how that brother and sister is handling things. Then also prayer is watchful. Watchful in prayer. This is what Paul says. He says, be watchful in thanksgiving. Watchfulness in prayer helps us to reject lies, false teaching, gossip, and hate. But then it also helps us to see the people around us. How, often, how fast in a 40-yard dash can we hit the door in here without recognizing the people around us? Prayerfulness continued steadfastness in prayer helps us to see each other. But it also helps us in a watchfulness, as he would say here, with false teaching. It helps us with watchfulness, with gossip. It helps us with watchfulness, with hate. Because you won't let somebody just gossip about another brother and sister without saying, how about you go to them? And if you need me, I'll do the Matthew 18 and one deal, and I'll go with you. In prayer, we're emboldened to evangelize. We not only see people around us, but we see the brokenness. We see those who do not know, who have not been radically transformed, and we evangelize. And then prayer helps us to be wise in our interactions. When he says walk in wisdom, this is what I mean by it's not about a revolt. It's not just about going and fighting, trying to start chaos. It's not about just seeking revenge. It's about being wise and understanding how to use your words gracefully. Using graceful words actually helps and heal broken people, broken communities. How do we know this? Because what Christ did on the cross was the very thing that we understand to heal all of us. And the words that healed us was what? It is finished. When you remember the fact that when he was praying on the cross and he said that it was finished, that changed, before you with a thought, it changed you. Before your mother knew you, it changed you. Before you were in where you were now, it transformed you radically. So what does that say? Is that when we relinquish power, we understand the inheritance that we have is greater than what we try to do on earth. So this is why he says, so whatever you do, do it with all your heart. 
Wow, Paul, I'm supposed to obey with all of my heart. I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to whoever is doing whatever. And I want them to know that you are serving the Lord in everything that you do. Everything that you do, when you go home, you serve. When you go home to your spouse, you serve the Lord. When you are single and you're dating, you're serving the Lord. When you are a child here, whatever age you are, you're serving the Lord. When you're a teenager, you're serving the Lord. I'm just, you are serving the Lord. And I am going to leave it at the fact that the most powerful words are the words that it is finished. Let me pray for us. God, help us to see that your finished work allows all of us to be free from exploitation, exploiting others, being exploited and dehumanized. We are not what other people say that we are other than a child of the king. And I pray, Jesus, that as we challenge the systems in place, as we think about those things that actually hurt Help us, Lord God, to be individuals that want to heal with the power of the gospel by, by individuals who are constantly challenging the narrative and constantly in prayer and seeking the wisdom of the king on how to move forward. For it is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray to this everlasting God. All God's people said together. Let us continue to worship by giving our gifts. Thank mm-hmm. you.